Shabbat Shalom. Let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you today. We want to thank you and praise you for who you are. Father, we also, on this Labor Day weekend, want to remember all the folks that are in the path of this, this hurricane that's headed towards Florida. Father, we ask that you would turn this hurricane away from the shore, that it would go straight up and then just dissipate over the ocean, and that it would not hit land. And Father, if for some reason you do allow it to hit land, we just pray for the protection of all the people, of the property, of the animals, of everything that's in its path. We pray for safety, and we pray, Father, for your will to be done in all things. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Tonight at sunset, we will be entering into a very special time of year, the month of Elul. And Steve, I just realized I forgot to bring my mouse up. Can you grab it out of the bag? It's in that front zipper pocket and bring it up. Right there, the black bag, hon. Right the other side, the black bag. Um, sorry about that. I've got one thing on the setup. Anyway, tonight at sunset begins the month of Elul. And the month of Elul is our preparation for the high holy days. That means we need to step back now. We need to take a long, hard look at ourselves and identify those areas where we need to improve in the coming year. Thank you. There's also a, mount, a trackpad. Um, as part of that preparation, the Jewish people and many Messianic believers recite Psalm 27 on a daily basis, as well as the Selicote prayers. And we're going to talk about both of those this morning. Let me get connected here. Perhaps you do have no idea why Psalm 27 is associated with the month of Elul. You may even be confused about what the Selicote prayers are and say, I've never heard of them. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, so you will know what those are this morning. I'll actually be talking more about the Selicote prayers next Sunday, a week from tomorrow, in our corporate prayer service. So those of you here in the Atlanta area, I hope you'll plan to be here with us this next Sunday from 3 to 5. And we'll actually go through some of those. But today, I just want to give you an overview of what they are so that you will know what that term refers to. And those are actually prayers for forgiveness that are said on fast days, and especially during the period preceding Yom Kippur. The High Holy Days are designated by Adonai as special appointments with him. They're a time to begin examining our deeds of the past year, take inventory if you want to use that term, and seek his forgiveness in those areas where we have missed the mark over the preceding year. These prayers are specifically tailored to help us direct our hearts and minds to the process of teshuva, which means repentance, and therefore they can play an important role in this process. When to start saying the Selicote prayers is one of the first questions we need to answer, and that, that depends. Good answer, huh? Sephardics actually begin saying them on the first day of the month of Elul, which would be starting tonight, while the Ashkenazics begin later in the month. They begin on the Saturday evening before Rosh Hashanah, unless Rosh Hashanah is on a Monday or Tuesday. If that's the case, they actually begin saying the prayers on the Sunday of the week before Rosh Hashanah because they want to make certain they're able to say them for at least three days. Regardless of when one starts reciting the prayers, they continue the prayers until Yom Kippur. 
Traditionally, on the first day, these prayers are said just before bedtime because the first part of the night is considered a time of din or judgment. Then on the succeeding days, it's recommended that they be said early in the morning prior to the shakarit prayers. And again, this timing is tradition. It's not a mandate from scripture. So if you say them at a different time of day, it's, you're not violating anything in scripture. A fundamental part of the Selicote prayers is the recitation of the 13 attributes of God's mercy that were revealed to Moses after the sin of the golden calf. And you can see that recorded in Exodus 34, verses 6, through 6 and 7. And this is what we see. It says, Adonai passed before him and proclaimed, Hashem, Hashem, Adonai is God, merciful and compassionate slow to anger, rich in grace and truth, showing grace to the thousandth generation, forgiving offenses, crimes, and sins, yet not exonerating the guilty, but causing the negative effects of the parents' offenses to be experienced by their children and grandchildren, and even by the third and fourth generation. So what we see here are 13 attributes. Hashem, Hashem, God, compassionate, merciful, long-suffering. Some translations say slow to anger. Number seven, rich in grace or abundant in goodness, kindness, as some translations put it. Truth, showing grace to the thousandth generation, forgiving offenses or iniquities. Crime, transgression, and sins, and who cleanses. So there's your 13. And what you'll note is that Hashem is actually mentioned twice, and God once, as an attribute. And that may be a little puzzling, but there's a reason for that. The term Hashem is actually a circumlocution for the sacred name of God, and it literally means the name. And it's used when Adonai is exhibiting characteristics of mercy. According to the Talmud, repeating his name twice tells us something very important, that God is merciful before a person sins, and he's also merciful after a person sins. The name represented in this verse by God is a different name, and it's the name that's used when God acts in his capacity as the almighty ruler of nature and the universe. According to Jewish tradition, God appeared to Moses and he taught them these 13 attributes. And again, this is Jewish tradition. And according to the tradition, this is what it says God told Moses. Whenever Israel sins, let them recite this in its proper order, and I will forgive them. Now let's be honest. Simply reciting this list will not bring forgiveness. However, reciting it is a reminder to us that repentance is always possible and that God always awaits our return to him. As I said a few moments ago, we won't recite all the Selicote prayers this morning, but I want to reiterate to you that they focus on repentance, and they include a number of readings from the scriptures, readings such as Psalm 145, which begins by stating that contentment awaits those who dwell in God's house. And then that psalm goes on to exalt and praise him for his mighty deeds. Psalm 27 that we'll talk about this morning is also included. There are additional psalms, Psalm 17, 32, 
51, and 51 is important because that's a psalm of repentance from King David after Nathan confronted him about his affair with Bathsheba. And then we have Psalms 65, 85, and 105, among other readings from the Tanakh. So all those are contained as part of the Selakote prayers, as well as the Shema and the Kaddish. The focus during this time should be on examining ourselves and repenting of our sins before our awesome and mighty God. Preparation is important as we get close to the high holy days, just as it's important for every element, for everything we undertake. As an example, if you decide to paint a room in your house, it may take you almost as long, and in some cases maybe even longer, to do the prep work than it does to do the actual painting. You have to take inventory of what you will need. You have to go to the store, buy the supplies. You have to prepare the room. That may include removing wallpaper, stripping the walls, patching nail holes, maybe repairing damage in the wall. It can be a lot of preparation work. You have to tape the baseboards, because you don't want to get paint on those baseboards. That takes even more time to clean up if you do. There's a lot of things that have to be done to paint that room. You don't just pull out the paint and start to work. It's a lot of prep. And even though it's time consuming, unless you want to have to go back and clean up those baseboards, or maybe have to start repairing the walls because the paint is peeling, you need to do it. It's important. If you do it right, spend the time, exert the effort, you can sit back and enjoy the transition after you've completed your job. Likewise, with the upcoming High Holy Days, in order to truly experience them, we need to prepare ourselves. We don't just enter into them blindly. And the month of Elul gives us that opportunity. Elul leads us into the month of Tishri. And in that month, all of the fall feasts are celebrated within a period of 15 days. So it's very fast. Once they start hitting, they just come one behind the other. The 40 days that lead up to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and that 40 days includes the entire month of Elul, plus the nine days of Tishri that separate Rosh Hashanah from Yom Kippur, are a time of reflection and repentance. Last year, at the end of Yom Kippur, we all vowed to improve ourselves. We want to be better people. We decided that in the coming year, we would most likely what we decided was that we would love more, that we would be patient with others, that we would have a better attitude. And overall, we wanted to make a world a better place. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I'm sure all of us had those desires at this time last year. And indeed, it was an excellent plan, but we need to be honest with ourselves. Were we able to keep our vow over the course of the past year? Each of us has almost certainly strayed from that path although hopefully we have made some progress in that direction and improved somewhat. Our goal is not to be perfect. We will never be perfect on this earth, but we need to do the best we can. And as believers, we should be coming more and more like Yeshua each and every day. That should be our goal. Thousands of years ago, on the first day of Elul, Moses climbed Sinai to receive the second set of tablets after he had broken the first set that had been given to him by Adonai because of the sin of the people with the golden calf. At that time, the shofar was blown 
as a reminder to the people not to again involve themselves with idolatry. In the Mishnah Torah, Maimonides describes the sound of the shofar as the call to teshuva, repentance. And that explains why we sound the shofar during the month of Elul. The shofar sound reminds us that the new year is coming and it awakens our desire for repentance. But the high holy days are not only for today. There's also a prophetic significance in each and every one of them. The first feast that we see for the fall feast is not given a name in scripture. In Numbers 29.1, it's simply referred to as a day for sounding the shofar. We know it today by several names. The Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah. This day, prophetically, is a rehearsal for Yeshua's second coming and our gathering to meet him in the clouds. Numbers 10 verse 9 gives us an interesting glimpse of another use for the shofar sound. Whenever you go to war in your own land against the enemy who is hostile to you, you are to sound short blasts of alarm. Then you will be remembered before Adonai your God and be delivered from your enemies. What we see here is we are expected to sound the shofar when we need him. In other words, cry out with an alarm. So when we blast the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, we are actually rehearsing what we should do when we need him cry out and sound the alarm. This causes Adonai to hear us and remember us in our hour of adversity. God hears our cry and he responds. The shofar has another use. It's actually sounded to let the bride know that her bridegroom is on his way to claim his bride. And we as believers know that from scripture that this is the sound we will hear when our Messiah returns to claim us as his bride. So this feast, as I said a few moments ago, is a rehearsal of that day in the future when our Messiah will come to claim us as his bride. Moving on on the calendar, the next feast is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On this day, we become somber as we, as we turn to God and are reminded of the future day of the Lord when Yeshua will defeat his enemies at Armageddon. Yom Kippur is then followed by the Feast of Tabernacles, some people call it Sukkot, others call it the Feast of Booths, so all three names, same holiday. This is the most joyful of all the feasts. It encourages us to look forward to the establishment of the millennial kingdom on earth, and it should likewise remind us of the birth of Yeshua, who took the form of man and dwelt or tabernacled among us. Then there is Shemini Azaret, which occurs at the end of Sukkot. This it's on the eighth day, and it's a picture of God wanting to spend one more day with us, and it foreshadows eternity with him. So that's a very brief, in a nutshell, explanation of the prophetic significance of the high holy days. Now what I want to do is move on to Psalm 27 and its connection with the month of Elul. It's traditional to begin saying Psalm 27 twice daily at the beginning of the month of Elul which again begins tonight at sunset, and to continue to do so until Shemini Atzeret, which ends the Feast of Sukkot. I keep referring to the month of Elul as a time of preparation. So let me explain what I mean by that. What are, exactly are we preparing for? Jude Judaism teaches that on Rosh Hashanah, 
each individual is judged on the merit of his or her deeds. That verdict determines whether or not he or she will live out the year or not, whether he or she will have financial success or ruin in the coming year, whether he or she will be healthy or ill, and so forth. All this for the upcoming year. Put another way, we have a court date with the judge of all judges, Adonai. So we are preparing ourselves to meet with Adonai for the purpose of being judged. That is why we begin a period of intensive introspection, of clarifying our life's goals, and of coming closer to God during the month of Elul. It's a time for realizing our purpose in life, rather than just going through the motions of living by simply amassing more money and seeking gratification. It's a time when we step back and look at ourselves critically and honestly with the intention of improving. There are varying explanations of how back in the mid-18th century, Psalm 27 became connected to this time of preparation. But when you consider David's proclamation in this psalm that one thing I ask is to dwell in the house of God all the days of my life, it is easy to see why this psalm was selected. It's often said that the references to Adonai being light and our salvation, which are stated in verse 1 as we'll see in a moment, refer to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur respectively. We will also see in verse 5 that David states he will conceal me in his tabernacle, a possible reference to Sukkot. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot all occur in the month of Tishri, and that's the month that follows Elul. So we are actually preparing for the month of Tishri. There's nothing in scripture requiring the reading of Psalm 27 as part of our preparation. What I want you to understand is that what we're discussing this morning is tradition. It's from both the oral law and the sages. But even though it's tradition, we shouldn't just throw it out because it's only tradition. Tradition that points us to God and our Messiah is valuable. As Messianic believers, we can definitely benefit from following this practice is I'm sure that all of us would agree that we, can take, that we should take every opportunity we are given to study God's word and to meditate on it. And when it comes to Psalm 27, a close look at this psalm can give us insight into what our prayer focus should be throughout these 40 days of preparation. And I'll be honest, initially I didn't see the connection, but as I began to study Psalm 27, and began to study about the days of preparation, I began to see that link between Psalm 27 and Elul. It becomes very visible when you really take a good look at it. Psalm 27 is one of the many psalms that David composed while he was under attack. In it, David follows his typical pattern of presenting his predicament while simultaneously expressing his trust that the Holy One would rescue and vindicate him. We are coming out of a very brutal time that time of Tisha B'Av, which is also known as the ninth of Av. So psalms that display a mindset of trust during a time of adversity are very appropriate during this season. Rabbi Rene recently gave a very detailed teaching on Tisha B'Av at our August corporate prayer service. But for those of you who weren't able to attend or may not even be familiar with the calamities that occurred on that day or on days attached to it, I want to give you a few. 
Ten of the twelve spies sent by Moses to observe the land of Canaan returned with a bad report, resulting in the Israelites not taking the land. Because of their lack of faith, God decreed that for all generations this date would become a day of crying and misfortune for their descendants. And you can go back to Numbers 13 and 14 to read about that. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C., after a two-year siege. And the Judeans were sent into the Babylonian exile. According to the Talmud, the actual destruction of the first temple began on the 9th of Av, and the temple continued to burn throughout the 10th of Av. The second temple, built by Ezra and Nehemiah, was destroyed by the Romans in August 70 AD, scattering the people of Judea and commencing the Jewish exile from the Holy Land that continues to this day. The Romans subsequently crushed Bar Kokhba's revolt and destroyed the Jewish city of Batar, killing over 500,000 Jewish civilians, approximately 800, excuse me, approximately 580,000 people in total, on July 8, 132 A.D., which was the 9th of Av. Following the Bar Kokhba revolt, Roman commander Turnus Rufus plowed the site of the temple in Jerusalem and the surrounding area on the 9th of Av, in the year 135 CE. The first crusade officially commenced on August 15, 1096, the 9th of Av, killing 10,000 Jews in its first month and destroying Jewish communities in France and the Rhineland. The Jews were expelled from England on July 18, 1290, the 9th of Av. The Jews were expelled from France on July 22, 1306, the 10th of Av. The Jews were expelled from Spain on July 31, 1492, that was Av 7, so just a couple of days before the 9th of Av. Germany entered World War I on August the 1st and the 2nd, 1914. That was the 9th and the 10th of Av. Germany entered World War I on, excuse me, um, okay, Not, and that caused massive upheaval in European Jewry and ultimately led to the Holocaust, so that is a very important date. Then on August 2nd, 1941, the 9th of Av, SS Commander Heinrich Himmler formally received approval from the Nazi Party for the final solution, and the Holocaust, Holocaust officially began. And during that time, almost one-third of the world's Jewish population perished. On July 23, 1942, the 9th of Av, mass deportation of Jews from Warsaw, the Warsaw Ghetto specifically, began en route to Treblinka, a notorious German extermination camp. Then, on the 10th of Av, and actually it's right here, the bottom of this one. On the 10th of Av, in more modern times, some of you may remember these events, the EMEA bombing of the Jewish community center in Buenos Aires that killed 85 and injured 300, July 18, 1994. That was the 10th of Av. And even more recently, the Israeli disengagement from Gaza 
started in the Gaza Strip, expelling 8,000 Jews who lived in Gush Katif. That was on August 15, 2005, the 10th of Av. Note that this is not a comprehensive list. There are other calamities relating to the Jewish people and Jerusalem that could also be included, but we're going to stop there for the sake of time. Now that this mournful period is behind us, we can refocus our attention and begin preparing ourselves for the upcoming High Holy Days. The Rambam, that was Moses Maimonides, who lived in the 12th century, wrote in his Hilkot Teshuvah, Laws of Repentance, of three steps to repentance. First is regret, second rejection, and third resolution. I found a site on the internet that's hosted by a Rabbi Schneiderman that added an additional step, responsibility. Together, these make the four R's of repentance, and I will allude to the four R's throughout the remainder of the class this morning. Rabbi Scheinerman's suggestion is that a person should take one of these R's and focus on that one R each week during the month of Elul. You have four weeks, so you have four focuses. They are responsibility, regret, rejection, and resolution. So let's get into the first one. When we look at Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3 relate to that first star responsibility. Psalm says of David, Adonai is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? Adonai is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? Adonai is my light and my life. I'm sorry. Somehow I dropped that last piece off. Okay. Anyway, these verses speak of light, as we mentioned a few moments ago, and light produces visibility. We can't see things in the dark, but we can see them clearly in the light. So when you link these verses to this season, what we see here is that both we and God are able to see who we are in God's light. In his light, nothing remains hidden. In his light, our true self emerges. We see our blemishes, our imperfections. But in that light is forgiveness and healing for those who follow the process of teshuva through to completion. David then goes on to state, whom should I fear? Or as it says here, whom should I dread? We like to believe that we fear God above all others. And actually, you know, I went forward instead of back, didn't I? No? Okay, that is the right verse. Okay. Okay. Sorry, it's hard to read. This thing's so tiny up here. I'm not sure I'm clicking on the right one. Sorry. Um, like I said, sometimes we like to think we fear God above other people, but do we really? The truth is that too often we fear people more than we do God. And I want to give you a quick story. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakei, lay ill. His disciples went to visit him. And they said, Master, give us your blessing. He replied, may you fear God as much as you fear human beings. They said, no more than this? His reply was this, that is more than enough. Believe me, do you not know that when we are about to commit a transgression, we dismiss God from our minds and hope that no human eye will see us. Sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, 
We should fear God and God alone. David then states in this verse that Adonai is the stronghold of my life. The word stronghold is translated as foundation in many other translations. So what is the foundation of our lives? What is it that I can actually depend upon without question? Hopefully the answer to those questions is Adonai. And then David ends this verse with, Whom should I dread? Are we to dread God? We are accustomed to thinking of the high holy days as joyous times in our homes. Good family, reunions, food, you name it. But when we go to synagogue, we hear about judgment, punishment, and retribution, so we become solemn. We hear about the book of life, which may or may not be inscribed with our names. But despite all this, for generations of the Jewish people, this was a joyous, albeit serious, time. And the liturgy reflects this. And that's because Rosh Hashanah was indeed a time of joy and confidence that those who genuinely repented and amended their ways would be forgiven and renewed for life. Hence, it's not so much about God's judgment, but it's about our teshuva, our repentance, that determines the quality of the coming year. And that is in our hands. It's therefore not God that we need to dread, nor judgment, but rather our own failure to take advantage of the spiritual opportunities of the season. Now let's go to the next verse. When evildoers approached me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army camp besieges me, my heart will not fear. Though war breaks out against me, even then will I be confident. David speaks of evildoers here. Ad and adversaries. We've all been hurt by others. We all have those people that we could probably ascribe these terms to. No one is immune. It's human condition. Some of us brush our hurts aside and we move on, while others carry them. They catalog them and they, they keep them with them forever. What did David do? He acknowledged his pain, but he also determined that it would not be what would rule his life and determine its course. He does not call upon God to avenge the evildoers or punish them, but instead he acknowledges their existence. And he went on and he said, if it will flip over. He said, even if enemies encamp around him, he would not fear. His life would not be determined by others or by the fear of others, even an army of enemies. Instead, confidence had filled his heart, as it should ours. It's also possible that the evildoers and the enemies are within ourselves, our tendencies to do the wrong thing. At each juncture in life, each time we open our mouths to speak, each time we make a decision to act, we have the ability to choose to either do evil or to do good. Berea, who lived in the second century, taught her husband, Rabbi Meir, an invaluable lesson about sin and repentance. Their neighborhood was beset with hoodlums who caused trouble for Rabbi Meir. And so one day he prayed that these sinners might die. Do not pray for the death of sinners, Berea said. 
but rather for the death of sin. Then sin having ceased, there will be no more sinners. And so the Talmud tells us, Rabbi, my ear prayed on behalf of the sinners. Initially, he failed to consider his role. The Talmud tells us little of his relationship with the people for whose death he prayed, but neither do we have any sense that he reached out in kindness or attempted to influence them positively. He was quick to blame others and ask God to act as enforcer and avenger rather than taking responsibility, which is our first R in repentance. Now moving to the next verse. And this will begin our second stage in Rambam's first stage of Teshuvah, which is regret. One thing I have asked of Adonai, that will I seek, to dwell in the house of Adonai all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Adonai and to meditate in his temple. King David was on the run trying to get away from King Saul when he wrote this psalm. And he regretted the fact that he was not able to worship in the house of Adonai. Like David, our lives are filled with regrets. We have missed opportunities, failed attempts, sacrifices we have made for others that are unappreciated. This time of year, we focus on relationships that can be repaired by changing our ways. Verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 27 speak to this idea of reestablishing relationships, especially our relationship with God, which is the very crux of teshuva. All teshuva ends up between us and God. The Mishnah teaches atonement for transgressions between one person and another can be gained only when the wrong has been righted and the offended person has been reconciled. Guilt goes hand in hand with regret. And much has been written about guilt. It's often condemned by psychologists as counterproductive. But excessive and unwarranted guilt can indeed become an emotional anchor weighing down the soul. On the other hand, guilt can be healthy and productive if handled in the right way. Guilt is the soul's barometer. It's our way of measuring our own deeds and words. It's that still, small voice of God within us that refuses to settle for mediocrity or worse. It's corrective. So guilt, if used productively, gives us an opportunity to ask a few questions. Against whom did I sin? How can I rectify that damage? How can I work to prevent the same mistake? The key is to use it in a productive manner, manner to correct what you've done rather than to sit back and feel guilty and let it consume you. Used in that way, it's very destructive. Used in the proper way, it can correct you and put you back on the right path. And here in verse 4, we see a beautiful sentiment. When we are in God's presence, we will experience him in a way we cannot comprehend. David here is speaking of two experiences. There's the desire to pray and worship him as a mortal man should, as opposed to living on the run as a warrior, as David was currently doing. And there's also the immortal sense of enjoying the eternal presence in the eternal kingdom. Verse 5, For in the day of trouble he will hide me in his sukkah, Conceal me in the shelter of his tent and set me high on a rock. 
the word we see translated here as hide me is in Hebrew, yitzpanini, which means to protect by hiding away. That's when Moses was hidden from Pharaoh's men by his mother in Exodus chapter 2. While the word sukkah, usually translated as tabernacle or booth, refers to a temporary dwelling. Thus, David expects deliverance by being hidden from his enemies, but not being hidden forever. He desires a temporary sanctuary, a sukkah. By calling it a sukkah, David hints at the joy of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, the most joyous of all the feasts, which commands us to rejoice, and also that this joyous lifting up to the most secret place will be but a temporary refuge in the day of trouble. When that day is past, then David and all of us who will be with him shall return in the company of the temple not made with hands. And what is that temple not made with hands? It is our Messiah, Yeshua. Going on to verse 6. Then will my head be high above my enemies around me. In his tabernacle I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, sing praises to Adonai. And 7. Hear Adonai when I call with my voice. Be gracious to me and answer me. Here we see David asking Adonai to hear him. We all want him to hear us, to react, to fix the whatever is going on in our lives, to provide for us, and to forgive us. We want to know that he's, as the saying goes, working on it for us. And we know from Scripture that he does indeed hear us and answer. Psalm 116 verse 1 tells us, I love Adonai because he hears my voice and my supplications. Proverbs 15:29 tells us Adonai is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And in 1 John 5.15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. And note this section that we've just read of Psalm 27 is actually voiced in the third person. In other words, the author here, David, is speaking about God, but he's not speaking to God at this stage. At this stage in Teshuvah, we think about what we have done and about those we have wronged, but we have not yet approached them directly. Okay? So verse 8. To you, my heart says, seek my face. Your face, Adonai, I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me. O oh God, my salvation, though my father and my mother forsake me, Adonai will take me in. These verses direct us toward that third R, rejection. David is asking for Adonai's presence and favor. If Adonai turns his face away in anger, we could also expect that he would turn his face toward us in acceptance. That's why the ironic benediction from number six tells us, may he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The thought of being rejected by another person is painful, but there's a positive side of rejection. And at this stage of teshuva, we have assumed responsibility for our actions, and we've come to regret them deeply. 
it's now time to reject them. When faced with a similar situation, we need to resolve not to repeat our previous misdeeds. The Talmud teaches if we are guilty of sin and confess it and yet do not change our ways, we may be compared to those who hold a defiling, now think about this, being compared to those who hold a defiling object even while they are immersed in purifying waters. Will all the world's waters help them? So long as we cling to defilement, the uncleanness remains. Pretty clear. The people and situations in our lives that provoked those bad behaviors, those behaviors we want to change, guess what? They'll still be there at the end of Elul. They'll even be there long after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur have gone. We cannot change others. The only thing we can change is how we respond to others. The proof of successful teshuva is when our behavior towards others, both word and deed, changes, even though the people and situations we faced have not changed. That happens because our lives have changed direction, no longer facing only ourselves. With our own interests in mind, we now face God. And as we see in these verses, the psalmist changes direction as well. In the previous set of verses, as I pointed out, he was speaking about God. Notice here that he's speaking to God. Also note the analogy that's used. Parents who ought to love us most and care for us the most deeply and protect us most aggressively leave us eventually because they die. Yet God never leaves us. God is the rock upon whom we can place our trust with the assurance that God will never abandon us. Also note the image of a hidden God as expressed in verse 9. It says, do not hide your face from me. God's people have always sought him. Sometimes we feel his presence. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we feel like he's actually hiding from us. It's not a modern condition. It's common in our human condition. On the negative side, Rejection can cause us to collect and keep resentments and bitter feelings. At this time of year, as much as we need to ask the forgiveness of those whom we have hurt, we also need to forgive those who have hurt us. So it's a two-way street. Approaching someone with a smile and a handshake may be all that's actually needed to re restore a relationship. In the coming year, a new attitude, best illustrated by the story I'm about to tell you, may help us may help prevent us from collecting what we should let go of. There were two friends, Jacob and Eliezer, and they were traveling together with their servants. The terrain was rough, and at each impasse, they worked together to meet its challenges. At one point, they came to a raging river that had to be forded. Jacob nearly drowned in the river, but Eliezer saved his friend's life. When Jacob had recovered from his ordeal, he carved these words into a rock on the shore near that spot where Eliezer had carried him out of the water. All caps, traveler! In this place, Eliezer risked his life to save the life of his friend, Jacob. Jacob's servant watched him with great curiosity. Some days later, the two friends fell to quarreling about who should carry the food for their journey. Jacob thereupon took a stick, sat on the ground, and scratched these words into the dirt. Traveler, in this place, Eliezer broke the heart of his friend Jacob during a trivial argument. 
Again, Jacob's servant watched him with great curiosity. And then he asked, Why is it that you inscribe the account of Eliezer's heroism in stone, but his cruelty in dirt? Jacob smiled and responded, I will forever cherish how my great friend Eliezer saved my life, risking his own to do so. But as for the insults and hurtful words, these, I hope, will fade as quickly as the words I have scratched in the dirt. With that, he arose and wiped them away with his foot. That's how we should treat hurts. We should not hang on to them. And this is where we learn about the fourth R re resolution, beginning in verse 11. Teach me your way, Adonai, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Note that because of my enemies. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. Surely I trust that I will see the goodness of Adonai in the land of the living. And one more. 14. Wait for Adonai. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for Adonai. David believed he would spend eternity in the presence of Adonai. This is not an isolated mention either. We see other such references in scripture. We know that we will see him. I want to give you a few quick examples. Psalm 1715. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Daniel 12.2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Job 19.25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Matthew 25, 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And then John 6:58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. There's no doubt that David... Daniel, Job, and numerous other ancient followers of Adonai believed that they would spend eternity in the presence of God as a result of their faith. As for David, this fact seems to bring him back into a confident mood. He then makes the final remark of Psalm 27. Essentially, David says that in the grand scheme of things, the answer to all questions and quandaries is the wait for Adonai. He will provide. He will come through. It may not be in the timing or in the manner that we guessed or would have liked it to have been, but ultimately he is the father who gives good gifts to his children. In these closing verses of Psalm 27, we see how David, who previously had been speaking about God, is still addressing him directly here at the end. In our process of teshuva, we also confront directly those who have wronged us, those we have wronged, we apologize to them and we make amends. And only then, once we've done that, can we actually face God directly and ask him for his forgiveness. That asking is a joyous event in the high holy days, for we are confident that having genuinely repented, God will forgive us. God is gracious and merciful, and he seeks not to punish but to forgive. So remember that his goal is not to punish us. He wants to forgive us but we have to be repentant and ask for that forgiveness. 
This assures us that it is possible to repent and repair our relationships with God, with other people, and even within our own hearts. In the word of Teshuva, it is our deeds that determine whether our repentance is successful. If we make the right choices and proceed with righteous behavior in place of our failings and shortcomings of the past, then our Teshuva is a success. So how do we accomplish this? Prayer is one way that we can maintain our commitment to spiritual renewal. Our lives are hectic and they're filled with obligations and commitments. Prayer can provide a few quiet moments of meditation and introspection to clear our minds and to focus on the direction of our lives. Many of us think that we don't have time for prayer. But guess what? The truth is we don't have time for anything. We make time for what is important. Also, practicing goodness, doing good deeds. Goodness is habit forming. The more we practice good deeds, the more they become a part of who we are. And back in verse 11, David had asked for guidance. And let me see if I can find that one here. Back one more. He's asking Adonai, teach me your way, Adonai, and lead me on a level path. He's asking for that guidance. Guess what? Adonai has given us that guidance through his Torah. The Jew understood from the beginning that Judaism was a religion of love because it did not leave him to find way through life alone unaided. It offered advice, insight, and experience. It was out of God's love and concern for Israel that he gave them the Torah so that instead of stumbling blindly, they might be aided by its principles, take heed of its warnings, and draw closer to him. Hence, Torah is a gift, it's a guide for our lives that can help us remain true to the commitments we make through the process of repentance and teshuva. Torah study, like prayer, can keep us on that path that we choose for ourselves. And Elul is indeed a month of preparation, as we've been talking about this morning. In the upcoming appointed times, we will remember and appreciate how Yeshua called us to repentance and will one day collect us as represented in Yom Teruah, the blowing of the trumpets. How he has become our scapegoat and secured our names in his book of life at Yom Kippur. And how he dwelt among us and is preparing a place for us to dwell with him forever in the Feast of Sukkot. Reciting Psalm 27 each day until the end of Sukkot can help us prepare our hearts for Teshuva. It can help us appreciate all that he has done and all he plans to do with us as individuals as well as as a community, both now and in his presence. So back to the question of why Psalm 27. The fourth verse of the psalm says, One thing I ask of Adonai, for this I do yearn, to dwell in the house of Adonai all the days of my life, to behold God's beauty, to pray in God's sanctuary. In his commentary on psalms, Rabbi Martin Samuel Cohen notes that what the psalmist is praying for here and what we are praying for by reciting the psalm is to experience God up close and personal. This verse expresses a clear spiritual goal, to dwell in God's physically perceptible presence. 
to gaze upon the beauty of God's perceptibly existent self-manifestation and to worship God in the fullest, most perceptibly real way possible. In other words, we're praying to experience God, not intellectually, but through our senses, with all our heart, all of our soul, and all of our might. We don't just want to read about God or hear about God. We want to visit God, to have that personal experience with God ourselves. That is the goal of Elul and the High Holy Days, and why Psalm 27 can be helpful in our preparation during this season. I strongly encourage you to prepare yourself for what God has in store for you during these upcoming High Holy Days, and to incorporate the Selicote prayers in Psalm 27 into your daily routine during these days of preparation. As I said, a little starts tonight, so you've got time. Okay, I'm telling you this in advance, so get ready to hit it strongly. I believe you will find that this tradition will bear much fruit and make your celebration of the upcoming High Holy Days more meaningful. So with that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for these upcoming High Holy Days and what you're, what you're speaking to us through them. You've, they're so meaningful. There's so much historical truth in them, so much for us today, and so much prophetic truth, the things that, to look forward to. And we just ask that you would speak to each of our hearts. Help us that we can truly commit to you repent before you, and prepare ourselves for what you have in store for us in this upcoming year. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.